All right, Lamentations 5. So this, this chapter stands apart from the first four uh, in, a, in a particular way. Chapters 1 through 4 are all written in the same general structure. And that structure is an acrostic, meaning an alphabet poem. If you remember from elementary school, you go through the alphabet and each stanza of the poem starts with a different letter of the alphabet. Uh, it's not English. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. There's 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so there's 22 verses or stanzas in each of these poems uh, with the exception of chapter three, which is three times as long as that, and each letter gets three stanzas. Um, but uh, chapter five is different. And this is, of, this is of noteworthiness as you study the book of Lamentations. It's noteworthy to, to notice the change in pattern. Um, this is not the same kind of pattern as everything else. And that's because this, this particular chapter is not written as a poem, it's written as a prayer. And, and it's a prayer that addresses and actually in some sense, as we're going to see, confronts God about what's been going on in their suffering. The, the, the first four chapters are sort of trying to explain it or articulate it or express pain in a structured way, right? It's almost like when your whole world collapses and everything's going wrong, you just want to make sense of it, right? And so you, you want to have some kind of like comfort. And it's like Jeremiah is using this, this structured poem to get that, that sense of control or that sense of, okay, this whole world is falling apart. I just need something that's going to hold me up here. And so he uses a, a type of poetry to do that. But by the time you get to the end of the book, it's not like that anymore. It's just chaos. Um, it's just crying out to God without any rhyme or reason, without any real intentional structure. It's just crying out to God out of the heart of a broken man. And we've already seen this throughout this book, right? That Lamentations was written for the purpose of expressing the suffering of the people in Jerusalem as the Babylonians came in and took them captive. And, and so this was a, a really dark season in history for the people of Israel. And Babylon comes in, they, they just take the city, they destroy it, they kill most of the people, and then they haul away the ones they think are valuable into exile. And it's a dark, dark season. And so here at the end, Jeremiah is just really, I, I think in some sense, accusing God for what has happened. Uh, we're going to see that, I think, pretty clearly in the text. We're going to see that Jeremiah addresses his pain, but not in, a, not in the same way he has been this whole time. It's just all kind of chaotic again. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this. And, but I, wanna, I just want to put this into some context because we said this at the beginning of this series about five or six weeks ago. We talked about how this book, this book of Lamentations, shows us that God's heart is bent towards human sufferers. God could have very easily just let his people suffer without any kind of addressing of the issue. But he doesn't. He, he addresses it. He gives words to their pain. 
And that's true for us too. And so while this is a hard prayer, that we're going to read this prayer and it's, it's addressing very difficult things, I find this prayer to be somewhat refreshing in a weird way um, because of its honesty. Um, this prayer doesn't operate out of some f- form of fakery or super spirituality. It, it doesn't put on some mask and pretend like what's going on isn't bad. It actually approaches God with real pain, with real confusion, and without sh- any sugarcoating. That, that's, to me, helpful. Because I think we live in, in a, oftentimes in a Christian subculture or, or a church world that is unhelpful in these things, where we just don't want to have any confusion or any expression of doubt. And here you have Jeremiah, one of the prophets of God, expressing all those things. Confusion, doubt, fear, his, his anxiety, his even just frankly accusing God of things that aren't really true of God, but in his pain it feels that way. And I think that should help us as we suffer through the Christian life. I think this is a, this is a comfort to us because it, it gives us words for our, for our pain or for our confusion or for our doubts. So as we walk through this, um, there's really three, three initial things that, that, are, that God's being confronted with. And then, and each of these three things are kind of big, broad categories of human suffering. Suffering that, exper- that the people of Israel experienced, but forms of suffering that we also experience on various degrees. And then the kind of the last couple verses or so um, is, is a direct address to God as a, essentially a, a confrontation uh, of God in the midst of these three categories of suffering. So that's the general outline of the text, and we're going to look at it here as we walk through it. But let's start in verse 1, because verse 1 is, I think, the overarching uh, real point of the prayer and what, what Jeremiah is trying to get to. Here's what it says. He says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Now, this word remember, when we hear that word remember, right, we think, we're thinking of, okay, something's been forgotten, and so it needs to be remembered. But God isn't being accused here of forgetfulness, because how can God forget, right? God is infinitely knowing. He's infinitely perfect. He knows what has befallen his people. He has seen their disgrace. So what is, what is Jeremiah getting at when he says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us? Well, what he's, what he's getting at, this word remembrance is not about forgetting. It's about forsaking. That, that's, that issue of forsaking is, is what's going to come out of this passage. We're going to see that very clearly at the end of the prayer uh, the connection between remember, O Lord, and 
not in a sense of forgetfulness, but in the sense of forsakenness. What, what Jeremiah is essentially asking here is this. Um, he's saying, God, don't leave us. Don't abandon us. Don't forsake us in what's befallen us. Draw near to us. Come and be present with us in the midst of our hardship and our disgrace. That's what's in view here. It's not about saying, God, you forgot, as if somehow his memories are lapsing, but it's in some sense of an accusation that you don't care. And so he's calling God to care and to pay attention to them and to look at them and see them and draw near to them. That's going to come back again, back around at the end. So we'll, we'll touch on it again. But let's, let's look at the first category of suffering that this prayer confronts God with. Look at verse 2 through 10. It's kind of the longest section, but, but let's look at it together. It says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners, We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and, he, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an, as an oven with the burning heat of famine. So you hear the overarching issue here. He repeats it several different times. The issue is that the people in Israel, are starving. This prayer begins with the confrontation of the reality of death. And death in not an easy, quick, quiet, go-in-your-sleep kind of way. But the death of God's people, the death of these people that have been in relationship with God, who are now dying, but they're dying in slow and painful ways. And this has been a a consistent reality in the first four chapters, right? We've seen him just, you know, Jeremiah cry out to God over the issue of starvation in the streets, people dying of hunger. And, and here is this first reality. The, the, the biggest reality of human suffering is laid out right here. And how do, we, how do we deal with this, right? How do we deal with the issue of death and not death in a nice, comfortable way, but a slow and difficult death? And that's, that's what this confrontation is. This is what this, this is um, really crying out to God to remember them because the people are in a terrible state. The, the prayer that Jeremiah is offering here is desperate. But it's rooted in hope. It is rooted in the fact that God can do something. I think the question still is to be answered whether he will do something in Jeremiah's mind. But he knows God can do something. 
And so he's calling out to him. He's asking him to repair what is broken in this city. And uh, so, yeah, this, this first reality is the reality of death. And, you know, I don't know that, I think we've a, a lot of times been kind of insulated from this. We, we have, you know, pe- most people die in hospitals and separate from the rest of society in our country. It's not true in a lot of countries. But we're, we're kind of like shielded from the realities of this. And Jeremiah was not shielded from it. He's watching people expire in the streets. He knows that they're starving. He can see it. He's starving himself, right? This is, it's not like he's above this or not a part of this. And so this prayer begins with a confrontation towards the Lord, asking him to remember them, to not forsake them, to meet them in this, but to do for them what they can't do for themselves, to provide a way of escape. So we see that this is the first this is the first heavy thing that is brought out. The second is possibly worse um, and and I want to well this is verse eleven through thirteen. We'll read these and it's it's hard, okay I'm going to give you just fair warning. it's not pleasant here, but we'll uh we'll read it. verse eleven through thirteen says women are raped in Zion young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. The boys stagger under under loads of wood. All right. This is probably, possibly even worse than starving. But this prayer confronts the reality of abuse. Like, like I said, this, this prayer is confronting the big categories of human suffering. Hunger, thirst, death, obviously are big ones. But this one is like brutal. This isn't just, okay, you know, we go through a nice comfortable little life and then we, then we die and we go to heaven. It's there may be some serious, serious abuse at the hands of other people that we have to, that we have to suffer from. And we see in, this, in these two or three verses, we're seeing every form, pretty much every form of human abuses. It starts with sexual abuse, it moves to physical abuse, right? Hanging the princes by their hands, that's torture. It goes to elder abuse. It goes to then child abuse. The boys are being loaded up with wood on their back and they're crumbling under it. We, we see this just trajectory of abuse on every level. And I think so many times we just, we don't want to deal with this. We don't want to think about this. But this is a reality in life. And it's not one that we should sit by and just go, ah, we can't care about that. We need to care about the abused. We need to do all that we can to protect people from abuse. It's a reality 
of a sinful world, but it's one that, that God's people should be compassionate towards and actually care about and do what we can to help meet those needs. I, I mean, I, I really believe that. I, I think we, sometimes I think we don't know what to do, and that's, that's true. I mean, what, is there a simple solution to this? No, there's not a simple solution. There's no just magic cure. But here's, I think, I want to, I'm, we're going to get to this towards the end, but I want to address it now, at least a little bit. Because I think that the issues of abuse, whatever forms those may take, whether they're physical or child or sexual or, or verbal or the belittling of people, the, the taking away of power from people, these, these are huge problems in our society. They're huge problems in our, in our county. We know it. We just don't know what to do about it. But I, I want to address some of, the, some of the hope in that. And this is more for those who, of you who have been through this and how do you process it and what do you do with it. Um, and there's, there's a little book uh, written by a guy named Mez McConnell who is uh, a pastor now, and he's been a pastor a long time in Scotland, but he grew up under the, the just incredible physical abuse as a child. And he wrote a book called The Creaking on the Stairs. And in that book, he talks about how he found God or how God found him in the midst of this abuse. And it's a hard book to read, but it's one I think that if that's a subject that you want to learn about, it's, it's um, a good book to read. But here's, here's where he gets to. He ultimately gets down to this, this hope that even though there is physical abuse and, and sometimes it can't be stopped, right? He, he was powerless to stop the abuse that happened to him. But the hope is not in, uh, in anyone but Jesus, right? That's, that's where our hope is. And our hope is in the fact that we have an abused Savior, that Jesus suffered, and he empathizes with us in our suffering, that, that's, that's the hope, guys. And we're going to get to that. We're going to see that as we go. But that's where we have to keep our eyes. It's that we have a Savior who understands what we've been through and what we're going through. Because he suffered too. So we see this. It's, it's like, we're kind of, maybe you're kind of surprised that the Bible even addresses these things. But... It does because it's a reality of human suffering. And I know that not all of you have gone through all these things, right? But, but, but we've all been in one degree or another sufferers in this world. And so this prayer goes into the darkest recesses of that, into the realities of abuse, into the realities of death. There's a third one we're going to look at here. And here's what it is. It's verse 14 through 18. It says, the, the old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen off our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. These verses address a third category of suffering. We have the the reality of sorrow. And this this is a form of suffering in itself, but it's usually flowing out of other forms of suffering. Right? He, he addresses the issue of sorrow. The old men have left the city gate. The young men have left their music. And the joy of our hearts has ceased. The joy of our hearts has ceased. So that's how he describes it. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. So here you have the, the, the brokenness of the city. And just, he's just expressing the sorrow of of a group of people who are under such incredible pain. There, there's no joy. And this is something that we have to wrestle with too, right? That as we walk through the world and we suffer, there's times, there are seasons where the joy is gone or it feels gone and it's, it's a reality and it's, it's one that Jesus also understands. Jesus is a man of sorrows, we just started this service with that that's hymn, uh, Hallelujah, What a Savior, and it starts that way, right? Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Jesus has come into this world, and he didn't come with this smile stapled on his face like he's this impervious, untouchable person, but he came as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Jesus understands our pain. He gets it because he lived it. So here's, so we're kind of through the first like three main complaints, so to speak, or, or accusations in this, poem, in this prayer. The confrontation to, of, of the reality of death and how, why is God letting people suffer and die in the streets? The confrontation of the reality of abuse. Why is God allowing people to suffer at the hands of others? The confrontation of this reality of sorrow. Why is God allowing the joy to be taken from them? You would think now that we're going to turn into a, into a better place, right? Into a, maybe to a hopeful place, but that's, that's not where it goes. So let's, but let's look at it. Let's look at where he goes. Verse 19, it kind of starts like might, might be going in a good direction. It says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So he acknowledges God's sovereign reign and control over the, world and then but verse 20 through 22 is where this this all comes down he says why do you forsake us forget us rather forever why do you forsake us for so many days you hear what he's saying he's saying god you reign on the throne forever your Enduring through all generations. So explain to me, God, why you have forgotten us forever and forsake us for so many days. 
there's an accusation here. It's not a good accusation. It's not even a true accusation, but it's how it feels. It's how it feels that God has forgotten them and forsaken them. In verse 21, he says, here he says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. So now here's an appeal. God, restore us. Come back to us. Bring our days back to the way they used to be. Bring us the good old days again. And then we think, okay, maybe he will, right? But then verse 22, this is how the book ends. This is literally how it ends. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This book does not end on any note of hopefulness. And that's intentional, you guys. That's because this is a book of lamentations. This is not like everything gets resolved and, you know, it's the Hallmark movie that everything happens perfectly at the end and it all gets good again. This is not this book. That's not always reality in a fallen world. So here you have this this prayer ending with something of an accusation against God that he has abandoned them, that he has left them to suffer and die. And here's the question we have to ask. Can we really blame Jeremiah for that? If if we'd lived through what he lived through, do, do you think that we would feel any differently? So, I think we, we need to be careful here because this is a book in a, in a particular context, in a particular time of salvation history. Jesus has not come into the world at this point in time. This is Old Testament. There's still something here that's not fully clear to Jeremiah. So we got to do some work here to get ourselves to understand the, the way that we need to look at this life and this issue. Here's the thing we've got to answer. We've got to answer a very important question. How, How do we come to grips with life when it feels like God has rejected us? When he, when he feels like he's distant from us in our suffering or when it feels like he doesn't care about us. Because I, I don't think that being a Christian means that we don't feel these things sometimes. I just think we need to have a better grasp on what the gospel says to these things. I don't think our feelings are different than Jeremiah's in our, in our suffering, but I think we have the benefit of Christ that is in his fullness and clarity, and we live on this side of redemption history, not on that side, which is a part that definitely plays a part of this. So, so where do we go with that, though? Where, where do we go to find our hope in this? That's the question we've got to address. Um, I think this passage itself teaches us something. It just in itself, I think when we feel abandoned by the Lord, what we ought to do is to do what Jeremiah did, in a sense, with a redeemed view of life, but nonetheless, 
We need to give to God our honest, real, and unfiltered prayers. I think that's the first thing, the most clear thing from this text. We need to give to God what's truly going on in our hearts. Even if those things that are going on in our hearts are not like good things or right things or sound theology things, we still need to give them to God in in prayer. We need to approach him in honesty. God is not insecure. He can handle your honesty. And I came across a quote from a pastor named Ronnie Martin who said this. He, He said, prayer that is honest, vulnerable, and holds nothing back from the Lord helps us reverse the trend we have of lying to ourselves. I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that statement. When we can bring to God our honest and vulnerable prayers, that's, that's when we can begin to really start to, to grasp and grapple with what's really going on in the ways that we are lying to ourselves. But let's, let's go beyond this. Let's go beyond just the intangible, right? The, to say to you, well, just pray an honest prayer to God is a little bit, it's not touchable. It's not necessarily helpful. So let's go further. Let's go a little deeper. And I think that this is where the doctrine of the incarnation becomes such a beautiful thing. Let me explain that phrase, the doctrine of the incarnation. Those are some big theology words, but this is, this is what I think understanding this doctrine gets us closer to knowing what to do in this. The doctrine of the incarnation is, is summarized in a couple of places. One is John chapter 1, verse 14, which says that the word... And in the context there, the word is a reference to Christ. So it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or you can go to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, which he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The doctrine of the incarnation is the doctrine that the eternal God became one of his creatures, became a human, and lived among us. So what does that do for us? What does all of that do to help us in the midst of our suffering? Well, it's, it's this, it displays in real life, in, in the reality of Christ and what he's done to become a human, that we don't merely have a God who intellectually understands 
or knows about suffering while he's sitting in his comforts of heaven watching his people suffer. But we actually have a God who experienced suffering to the ultimate degree. Like this is one of those things that blows the mind when we, th- when we think about the fact that God became a man and he didn't lose any of his godness in that. He stayed God but became man. He added humanity onto his deity. He, he's, this God became a man and then suffered abuse at the hands of people, was rejected by his family, his earthly family, and ultimately rejected by God the Father himself on the cross. He was rejected. He was physically abused. He was emotionally and verbally abused by the crowds at his crucifixion. And he ultimately died a criminal's death on a cross. God died on a cross. This is, that's a mind-blowing thing. Jesus suffered. God suffered. Jesus was abused. God was abused. Jesus was abandoned. God was abandoned. And he died. This is, this is, I think, the only true hope we have in the midst of a broken world. And when we suffer what we need to picture, visualize, understand is that when we look upon the nail-scarred hands of Christ, as he reaches out to us in our suffering, what we see in that is absolute evidence that God does care. Jeremiah asked the question at the end of this book, will you forget us and forsake us forever? But in Jesus, you guys, the answer is always a resounding no. He won't. He will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews tells us. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. These truths are true because we have a God who lived and suffered and died for us. But we also have a God who rose. Christ did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead, which is what gives us hope for eternity and gives us hope that we have a living and active Savior who is actually engaged with us, who is actually reaching out to us, who is actually meeting us in our suffering. And that's where the comfort is. Jeremiah didn't have any of those comforts. He lived on the, on the other side of, of human history. He was left to just wonder these things. We know these things. It doesn't mean that our pain isn't real and it doesn't mean that our pain isn't genuine and it doesn't mean that we can't be confused. All that's still true. But what it does mean is that we have a tangible practical, real Savior who meets us in these things. So, let me pray for us. 
and then we'll 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 uh, respond to God in, in how He wants us to tonight today. Jesus, would you help us? I know that there's people in this room who have been through so much. All of us have been through things. We have differing degrees. We have differing experiences, but we have all been through pain. And yet, Lord, we know that you also have been through pain. Would you meet us in that? Would you comfort us in it? Would you suffer with us? We know you do. We know that you will. We just pray, God, that we would sense that and recognize that. And God, we just pray our hearts would be drawn into what you have for us. I pray you would tangibly comfort us by the Spirit today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.